This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the New Books and Library Science podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Michael LaMagna. Today, I'm joined by editors and contributing authors to Practicing Privacy, Literacy, and Academic Libraries, Theories, Methods, and Cases, published in 2023 by the Association of College and Research Libraries. The book argues that academic libraries and librarians should be taking a leadership role in advocating for and providing educational opportunities around privacy literacy. This book provides the information and tools necessary to assume these roles. Joining me to discuss this book are editors Sarah Hartman Caverly, who is a reference and instruction librarian in Penn State University Libraries at Penn State Berks, where she liaises with the Engineering, Business, and Computing Division, and Alex Chisholm, who is a reference and instruction librarian and in liaison to Penn State Berks First Year Experience Program and Science Division. Welcome to the podcast, Sarah and Alex. Thanks so much for having us, Michael. We appreciate the opportunity to be here. So before we jump into our discussion of your new book, Practicing Privacy, Literacy, and Academic Libraries, I was hoping you could tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, and your path into academic librarianship. Sure. Um, so this is Sarah speaking. Happy to get us started. The truth is that once I was an undergraduate student worker in an academic library, I never left. Um, so yeah, I started in professionally in academic libraries in 2007, working as what was then called a paraprofessional or a support staff member on the technical services side of the house. I decided to pursue my master's in library and information science. I also have a second master's in information systems. And I started working uh, first with print serials and then shifted into electronic resources as that transition was happening in the 2000s. I went into electronic resources management and library systems administration. And then in 2013, I kind of came to the dark side of public services and started doing reference and instruction first in a public community college setting and now in a public R1 university setting. All right, and this is Alex speaking. Uh, so my path was a little bit more circuitous than Sarah's, not quite too much, uh, but I had uh, initially thought I was going to pursue uh, museum studies or archives. Uh, I have an undergraduate degree in anthropology like Sarah, but I had focused a lot on um, archaeology. Uh, so I had been exploring options for grad school. I ended up getting into Pitt and um, through my advisor, ended up in an instruction 
a library instruction class and it completely changed my my goals. I really loved teaching and realized how much that that um, was a path that I wanted to pursue and I enjoyed so much. Uh, I always knew I wanted to end up in academic libraries. So it was a nice little um, combo there. And I, I ended up following that. I uh, got my first professional position um, in 2013 at Alvernia University. And then I ended up at Penn State about seven and a half years ago, and the rest is history. <laughs> Excellent. So what sparked your interest in the topic of privacy and privacy literacy, and how did this collaboration develop? So actually, while I was at the community college, the information literacy program we had in the library there was part of the general education curriculum. And what we were doing was offering co-curricular workshop programming that would help students as well as faculty who are kind of assigning those as part of their courses meet that gen ed requirement. And in 2013, some folks right, remember that was kind of a bellwether year in privacy because it was the year that whistleblower Edward Snowden released his evidence of the global surveillance grid. So less than a year later in 2014, I offered my first privacy literacy workshop there at the community college. It was called Is Big Data Big Brother? And I can still find the slide deck in my Google Drive archive. Um, and so, yeah, it goes back about 10 years then. I also did some student-facing programming around learning analytics, which were really coming to the fore at the time, as well as some um, instructor and faculty level programming around learning analytics. And I may have had a partner in crime in that programming at the time. Um, but so the interest really goes back that far. And then when I made the transition to Penn State Berks in 2018, I met Alex Alex, we recognize this uh, shared area of interest, and I will let her maybe pick up the story from there. Great. And I um, have always, my whole life, had a lot of interest in marketing and the kind of psychological manipulations that go into um, marketing to various consumer groups. So that was always something I was always fascinated by. Um, in grad school, I had a professor sign uh, Sherry Turkle's uh, Alone Together book, which was hugely inspirational for me as well. Uh, and it really articulated a lot of things I had been observing through my young adulthood um, and and throughout college that I hadn't really had a language to talk about before. So that was really the beginnings of my interests. Uh, and then when the framework, the ACRL framework for information literacy came out, uh, a lot of inspiration came from the information creation, or I'm sorry, information has value frame, where I started thinking more about this mix of um, the commodification of personal information and marketing and how this can be combined. Uh, so I started kind of exploring that. Um, by the time I got to Penn State, I was thinking about how I could integrate privacy literacy into my instruction, but hadn't quite found an opportunity yet. And then the timing of Sarah's arrival really um, did the trick. So we connected very early on. Once she arrived, I had only been at Penn State about a year and a half at that point uh, with the shared interest. And we realized we had like come in at kind of different angles. Like I know Sarah is very, especially back then, was very focused on like government surveillance and intellectual privacy. And I was very much more interested in commercial surveillance um, and personal manipulation. So it was uh, a, just a nice tie-in. And she always describes it as she's the theory wonk. <laughs> so she brought a lot of like uh, deep knowledge and interest in theory, which still at that point intimidated me a bit more. Uh, and I was very focused on pedagogy. So it was a nice partnership, especially early on, because I think we challenged one another um, and really kind of brought out 
some strengths and weaknesses. And I wouldn't say that I'm quite the theory wonk that she is still, but we've kind of come, you know, the scale slid toward the middle a little bit more. <laughs> oh, that's excellent. That's that's so great that that you both were able to come to Penn State Berks at the same time and and collaborate on this. So your your book is divided into four sections, and the first section defi- defines what privacy literacy is. And you offer a new way to think about privacy. Like most people, I think about privacy in the digital age in terms of technology and the data that's collected. How should we frame our discussions about privacy? And what is the six privatized conceptual framework? Oh, I'm so glad you asked about this. One of the real kind of cruxes of our approach to privacy literacy is that privacy is fundamentally about respect for persons, not about protection of data and not about configuring technology. And one of the reasons that we emphasize that so much in our work is we think it's much more welcoming to frame it that way for potential practitioners, as well as for our our learners and participants, than to emphasize, like, you need to be an expert in all these technologies and you need to be up to date on all the most recent browser plugins and settings configurations and all of this stuff. No. If you care about people, you too can be a privacy literacy educator. Um, So the six private eyes framework is our reframing of what privacy means in the day-to-day human experience. Just as you described, often when people are thinking about privacy, they're thinking about uh, immediately about the prevention of specific privacy harms. It could be reputational harm. It could be misuse of personal data. It could be cybersecurity breach. It could be misuse of account credentials, all those kinds of issues, which are all very valid concerns that we should carry with us in the digital age. But what we've done with six private eyes is said, let's pause and recognize that even if none of these terrible things ever happen to you, privacy is still playing a really positive role in your day-to-day human experience. So the six private eyes refers to these six frames in this conceptual framework, which was is an onion model. So you can imagine these concentric ring, rings working out from the center. So at the center, we've got identity. Privacy protects your ability to, to craft and form and express and have a sense of your personal individual identity. One move out from there, we've got the frame of intellect. Privacy protects the um, activities of your mind, so your ability to form independent thoughts, belief systems, value systems. Um, Neil Richards is a key theorist in this area on intellectual privacy. He describes it as the ability to be free from interference or surveillance when we're engaged in the process of developing ideas. Uh, But it also protects intellectual property. So if you're someone or work with students who are um, people creating works of um, human authorship that might be under copyright protection or inventions and designs that may be patent eligible, your intellectual privacy protects your rights to those intellectual property. One frame out from there, we have integrity, and there's kind of two stealth private eyes in here. So we've got contextual integrity, which speaks specifically to data. So the keyword there is context. This is when the right people know the right things about you at the right time because you're exercising some agency over your personal information flows, and that draws on Helen Nissenbaum's framing of privacy as contextual integrity, uh, appropriateness in, in distribution and access of your information. The other integrity frame is your bodily integrity. So now we kind of shift from this metaphysical realm of your identity, your intellect, and your data into the more physical or spatial realm of privacy. So bodily integrity, your right to physically be left alone, your right to have medical autonomy, uh, spatial privacy, all those kinds of things. One frame out from there, we're now talking about intimacy. We kind of shift gears into thinking a little bit more about group and collective communal privacy. So intimacy, think your very closest relationships, 
uh, your family member, significant other, and very best friend are all going to know largely overlapping, but also very distinct sets of information about you. And those three different intimate relationships rely on a shared sense of privacy or confidentiality. So privacy protects your ability to participate in a broad range of social relationships. And building on that, that final frame of interaction and isolation really speaks to your freedom of association. And in classes with students, we'll give them the examples of a sports team or a faith-based community. Both of these groups of folks rely on the ability to uh, decide who is a member who belongs, who's not a member, who gets to participate in certain activities, uh, certain religious rites and rituals, or in a sports team, who gets to know what all of these different signs and signals mean for carrying out different plays, right? That's, again, that broadest sense of group and collective privacy. And then uh, isolation refers to your ability to voluntarily withdraw into seclusion and be by yourself. So kind of separate from social interaction, um, regroup, kind of have that relief and reprieve. And again, that protects your ability to, to be who you are and to participate and perform all of these different social roles. So that's kind of a rundown of those six private eyes. And we love to use this framework to identify otherwise hidden privacy harms and privacy benefits when we're looking at cases with students. Oh, that's excellent. What a great framework to think about. And and I like that you've brought the human back into the discussion. Now, Alex, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about how privacy or the lack thereof impacts a person's well-being. Well, <laughs> no, absolutely. So a lot of what Sarah just covered really goes into that. Um, so essentially, digital wellness is a really huge one for me and something that I've been exploring um, extensively uh, in my research. But there's just a the loss of control that comes from contextual integrity that Sarah was talking about is one of the biggest ones. And this is a very hidden harm we often aren't aware of what we're losing control of, which is what I think we like to focus on when we have um, these digital wellness opportunities and workshops with our, our students. Um, there's just so much going on with data collection, with smart devices, whether they're in our home, the wearables that we have, um, apps, our phones, like just literally anything we're using to communicate, um, to buy things on. Um, we're constantly giving away a lot of data on our behaviors and um, on our preferences. And these can be taken out of context to kind of create flattened stereotypes of who we are as people. And that gets to that identity frame that Sarah was talking about as well. Um, so we're being increasingly defined by this data, um, whether it is in a lower stakes environment, which I would consider targeted advertising, um, even though that can get very sensitive, there are people who maybe suffer from alcoholism who might get targeted ads about alcohol consumption um, and things of that nature, uh, but it can get higher stakes and we're seeing that at a societal level. Uh, and this goes beyond just like individual well-being into more social justice issues, which is a really huge issue as well, um, because there are marginalized groups that are losing access to social services and the social safety net as a result of some of these technologies and some of the data that's collected. Um, and so a lot of us, Sarah and I talk about this a lot with students, even if some of these um, practices aren't impacting them personally, because we have some data privilege, um, we're participating in this economy, this data economy, where it 
our data is contributing to um, oppression of others uh, through this whole system. And it's really the hidden structures that are so disturbing uh, and that I find the most fascinating only because we all minimize it. We're just like, oh, well, I really want to use this app or this, um, you know, I, I really think whatever, like my, my smartwatch is a great idea and it's brings so much improvement to my life. Um, that's true. That's totally true. And we're not trying to tell people that they can't have these devices or utilize them in their lives, but it's so important um, for people to realize how they're complicit in a larger system and how this can impact both them as an individual along the line, but then also these like huge scale decisions that are occurring with our society, uh, whether it's healthcare, criminal justice, and we're seeing increasingly with generative AI and different applications of that as well. So, um, oh, yeah, no, that that it's very interesting to think about. And so, to bring it back to to academic libraries and institutions, and in, in the second part of your book, you examine patron privacy and how academic libraries can protect it. And so, how can we as librarians work towards protecting privacy, given the amount of information that we collect on our own students and patrons? And really, what are some of the legal issues along with our own institutional practices that we should consider when thinking about privacy? Well, I'm going to quote Alex here. <laughs> she, we did a workshop on this recently for Penn State, and she used the line, we need to put our ethics foot forward, right? We need to be ethics first on these issues. And I think she's absolutely right. One of the traps that I think we fall into in academic libraries is thinking that FERPA covers all of this. Um, and I'll shamelessly plug that I have an op-ed from October in Inside Higher Ed about how FERPA has completely fallen into obsolescence in the contemporary age. Not only has it fallen into obsolescence, but there's actually these gaping loopholes like the school official loophole whereby ad tech companies like Google and Facebook can actually become school officials with legitimate you know, educational interests, so to speak, that can then gain access to otherwise FERPA protected students educational records. Um, so we can't rely on this FERPA compliance checkbox anymore to say that we're protecting students' privacy in any kind of meaningful way in terms of their intellectual privacy. Um, a big practice in this area is simply data minimization. And this is in line with guidelines from ACRL, from ALA. Um, there's a great book about this by Becky Yost and uh, Christina Briney, whose title I'm going to bungle, but it's essentially about managing patron data in libraries. And essentially the, the saying is, or data minimization is, if you don't need to collect the data for literal patron facing operational purposes, not things like assessment or, you know, it, it continuous improvement, but operational purposes that directly benefit patrons don't collect the data. If you don't have the data, it can't do the harm. And it's Bruce Schneier who calls data a toxic asset, essentially. Like he says, this is something that's so easy to collect. It's typically collected by default, but we should look at it not just as the asset that it can be for various forms of analysis. And again, continuous improvement and assessment, but also as potentially toxic, that there's a lot of potential for doing unintended harm to our patrons by keeping this data, whether it then becomes uh, subject to a subpoena or a warrant, or whether it's something that, you know, there is being used in the academic context through learning analytics to profile them in a particular way for particular uh, categorization of student risk profiles or for particular interventions that um, may be disruptive or patronizing to their learning experience in higher education. So my big thing here is that there are certain necessary attributes of patron data we need to collect to carry out our work, but we should be very selective about what they are. And we should think really meaningfully about, you know, who is it hard for to deliver a service when we're rest restricted 
restricting our data collection? Is there a way that we can deliver uh, e-access authentication or circulation or even things like, you know, reading histories? Is there a way that we can get at that service and deliver it without automatically collecting patrons' data without their consent and awareness? That's very interesting. Now, many people working in higher education will discuss the benefits of learning analytics and predictive analytics to help students. So what are some of the issues of learning and predictive analytics with privacy and do the benefits outweigh the harms? Oh, how much time do you have? <laughs> we got plenty of time. <laughs> so yeah, I want to fully acknowledge that I think learning analytics initiatives are always really well-intentioned, um, right? A lot of it has to do with being able to provide uh, point-of-need interventions for students who would otherwise be at risk for failing out or not completing a course or falling behind on their course completion, potentially losing access to financial aid, or perhaps in the case of international students, you know, visa status. These are all things that we want to keep in mind when we're having this conversation. Um, the Data Doubles Project, led by principal investigator Kyle Jones, has done a lot of really excellent research with students on the specific issue of learning analytics, qualitative and quantitative research. And the take-home message from their work is essentially students want these tools to be used in ways that directly benefit them individually. So not in a vague sense of like, there will be some benefit to you or your peers for having collected and analyzed this data. No, they want to know that it's benefiting them individually. They want there to be a consent process, you know, in my opinion, preferably opt in, but even if opt out mechanisms are provided, that's, you know, suffices. Um, and they want to be aware. They want to know how this data is being used. One of the other things that comes out in their research, two things I'll mention. One is there's a diversity, equity, inclusion, access, and belonging consideration to be had when we're talking about data collection on students. Their data consistently shows that students who identify with minority communities, um, be it uh, racial and ethnic minorities, sex and gender minorities, um, religious minorities, even political minorities, which in higher ed happens to be conservative-leaning students, they are highly skeptical of learning analytics initiatives and use of their data by their institutions, and they're less likely to trust specifically libraries, but I think we can extrapolate to their institutions and in collecting and using their data. So that's this DEIAB consideration that we need to have for, foremost in mind, that we know that there's a disparate impact of any types of surveillance on members of minoritized communities, and that that then means that they can be subject to disparate harms from that data collection analysis and use. Um, the other thing we want to keep in mind there is students are very concerned about transmission of their learning data to third parties. And as we just mentioned, there's this massive loophole in FERPA that allows all kinds of third parties to be deemed school officials. All they really have to do is be contracted to provide a service to the institution, to the university, to the college, to the school. And they're now a third party with you know, this legitimate educational interest access to all of students' learning data. So when we think about the, the places we're contracting with for all of our networking and communication services, Microsoft, Google, you know, some K-12 schools in particular may be using Facebook or Meta's products, um, students are really concerned about what that means for them. And we can be told that there's all these firewalls in place that educational data is not being paired with commercial data on the other side of, you know, other side of these entities services, but we don't 
can't really know that that's the case. And I think now these generative AI systems um, add some even more uh, interesting questions in that domain, right? What data is being used to, to train, um, you know, Bing Chat or to train Google Bard or to train ChatGPT with OpenAI's relationship with Microsoft? So those are all the things that students flagged as being concerns in that data doubles project research. Um, so I think, you know, using uh, their voice uh, to say, here are the concerns that students are expressing, setting aside my own qualms and opinions about learning analytics is probably the best the best way to address that question. Excellent. So now in the third section of your book, you offer case studies about educating our communities about privacy through workshops and other educational opportunities. So how can libraries and librarians build privacy literacy programs and how does that fit within existing information literacy instruction programs? Well, <laughs> so I will attempt to take this on and Sarah can can fill in some blanks for me. But I mean, to Sarah and I immediately, like the connection between privacy literacy and existing information literacy is very clear and obvious. Um, and we're actually currently working on, you know, a small entry in a handbook for information literacy right now, just to kind of talk about those kinds of connections and relationships. Um, but essentially, like, information increasingly in our current information ecosystem is data. Uh, and while we view privacy literacy with a very human-centered uh, approach, so much of how we're defined now, like I mentioned earlier, is through data that's collected about us. This is increasingly how we're defined and how we're interacting um, with our information ecosystem. So if data is information, it 100% falls under that purview of information literacy from, from our perspective. Um, so we think it's really vital that people have basic skills and knowledge to understand how their personal data and also big data in general is um, increasingly influencing the world around them, their perspectives, um, how they receive information, uh, and all of this. So it's it really fits under that umbrella entirely to us. Um, and I think that it really addresses a lot of the the complexity that we're seeing come out right now with generative AI and a lot of like the moral panic with with some of these technologies that are occurring uh, and integrating privacy literacy into information literacy programs, um, people becoming more knowledgeable and literate themselves as practitioners in this area is going to help them address some of this complexity um, beyond things like mis misinformation and um, the things that we've typically been addressing in the last few years. Um, bringing privacy literacy in there is going to give us the opportunity for things like AI literacy, algorithmic literacy, and we view all of these as parallel literacies that can work together. Um, so I think I addressed part of your question. I don't know if I missed a part, uh, but Sarah, do you want to jump in? Because I, I lost a little bit of my where I was going with that. Well, I'm going to nudge you to talk more about algorithmic literacy and the evolution of your programming from media literacy and kind of fake news workshop programming into what you're doing now. Sure, sure. Thank you. That's a nice little prompt. Um, but yeah, so much like everyone else back in like 2016, 2017, I started exploring how I could address things like fake news and misinformation in my instruction, particularly since I work with first year students so much. Uh, this was something that was a need professors were asking for. Uh, and I took a very um, 
psychological approach to different things like heuristics and um, different uh, uh, cognitive biases that we have, as well as uh, I got into journalistic ethics and exploring how journalists actually present information and how you can use that to analyze what you're reading. So that was my original approach, which I really enjoyed, uh, but I started noticing students be exhausted with the topic. And I was kind of bored and exhausted with the topic. Um, professors still really wanted us to talk about this, but the students and I were bored. Uh, I hate to admit it. So I really started making more connections with the fact that, as Sarah always points out, misinformation and information warfare is not new. It's really not. It's been going on for hundreds of years. Like this is something that's not going to be going anywhere. The tactics and the ways that it's deployed have changed, um, but that is not a new phenomenon in our information ecosystem. Uh, so I started really questioning, well, what is new and interesting about this and how can I still address this to satisfy faculty, um, classroom faculty, but also <laughs> I'm more interested, students are more connected to the topic. Uh, and so that's what led me to um, kind of an algorithmic literacy workshop that tied in a lot of privacy literacy um, concepts as well. Uh, and so what was new and interesting is the way our information ecosystem works, how much data and information we're producing and disseminating on a regular basis. Um, I like to use an infographic. Everyone can kind of Google this. Uh, the infographic is Data Never Sleeps from a marketing firm called Domo, and they update it every year. And it shows how much data is produced every minute of the day on average. Uh, and it's so fascinating to see each year how it exponentially grows. But this complexity and this visualization really helps students and faculty kind of grasp what we're experiencing here. Uh, and so that was my new approach to this, to kind of explore um, personalization and how that impacts uh, how we are receiving content. So we're no longer actively, we're often not actively seeking out specific information. We're passively receiving it. Um, and we're just kind of accepting that what we're receiving is what we need to know. Uh, and unless you have that critical thinking, that little nudge in your mind to, to go beyond that, uh, it's really easy to just accept what you've gotten. Uh, and I actually had a professor this semester really pause the workshop and want to talk a little bit more about um, how psychologically the first thing we hear is what we're going to remember and believe. Uh, and it's very hard to undo that. Uh, so that import the importance of that um, and of understanding that our behaviors online are influencing what we are receiving on a regular basis and how that can impact our worldview overall. Um, is the focus of uh, my For You workshop that I do with first year students. Uh, and that's just an example of a way to kind of meld uh, information literacy with privacy literacy and to bring in some concepts um, like attention engineering uh, and the attention economy, persuasive design, uh, personalization, and get students thinking a lot more about the technological um, aspect and like maybe a little bit of the manipulation and the, the personal data capture that influences their everyday information consumption. Um, so that's more of a practical application of those things, but 
Thanks yeah, for and I'll just pick Sarah. up there because I'm sure there's a lot of people, if you're an instructional librarian and you're listening to this, you might be thinking, this all sounds really great, but who's got the time, which is a really common finding that we have in our research with other practitioners, you know, time is, is the perennial struggle. So at a practical level, we have spoken with people in our research with other privacy literacy practitioners who are at the level of, I am sneaking it into existing course-related one-shot sessions, all the way through to, I am teaching a, a credit-bearing course, or I have a fellowship, a funded fellowship, right, for students where we get to really delve into these issues in depth. What it looks like for us is we now have, I think we're up to eight or nine co-curricular workshops, depending on the year. <laughs> um, and we built that up from the foundational privacy workshop that we started in the fall of 2018. Um, so our fall semester, we do the foundational privacy workshop in first year seminars, and that's Alex's liaison area. So that's a really great connection that we have. We then in the month of October for Cybersecurity Awareness Month, offer three additional workshops that are very more traditionally privacy literacy centric. So we have one on sort of the, the traditional digital footprint management called Digital Shred. We have one on reputation management and thinking about privacy literacy as it may impact your career or future you know, studies opportunities. That's called currently called digital leadership. We're thinking about rebranding that one. And then we have our digital wellness workshop, which is really privacy literacy and its benefits across the lifespan, thinking of technology's place in our well-being across the lifespan. Just in the past year, we've been expanding that series into the spring. And folks may be familiar with Love Data Week in February, which is really more geared towards data analytics, data visualization, research with data. But we have stolen the branding and we're doing privacy literacy programming now in the spring. We started with an intimate privacy workshop called Private Bits. This is examining the role of privacy and technology in sex and relationships. We are adding this year two additional workshops, one called um, Data Harm Examining. Alex, fill in here. This is Alex's workshop. Oh, yeah. Sorry. Uh, data Justice. Thank you. Exploring um, discriminating technologies and tech power. Yes. So that's a social justice oriented privacy workshop. And then also we have one on generative AI and intellectual privacy called Hidden Layer, Intellectual Privacy and Generative AI. Um, we also have a few that are kind of course integrated. So we have one on surveillance capitalism that I've integrated into a business course called Dark Patterns that looks at deceptive design techniques um, and dark patterns in you know commercial online environments. So we're really just looking for all of these different ways co-curricularly that we can work these programs in. And we're teaching them mostly as standalone workshops. Again, we've done a couple of course integrated ones. And now what we're doing is I'm in the process of taking the, that workshop series and converting it into a general education course, ideally, hopefully for Penn State, but it will eventually also be open licensed as an OER. So this is someone that anybody could plug and play into their own curriculum. Um, so it will have the, the sort of sequence of privacy literacy, um, hands-on learning activities, but it will be melded with some additional theory, which is my first love, as well as some framing with intellectual virtues and virtue epistemology. And then the kind of capstone project will look at controversy mapping in the privacy domain. So that's how we've slowly been iteratively building on our programming since that first year in 2018. And to Sarah's point with time and like who has time for it, like all these are open access or open OERs, uh, and they're available on um, both our Digital Shred Toolkit, our Privacy Literacy Toolkit, but also on, um, oh, I'm blanking. The, the ACRL uh, Sandbox. The Sandbox, yes, the yeah. ACRL Sandbox. So they are all available, all those materials um, and notes and lesson plans and things of that nature. Oh, that's that's really great. And, I, and I'm glad to, that you're bringing in the theory and then talking about it in practice, how uh, a 
practicing academic librarian could integrate this. And that was one of the strong points of that of the third section of your work is that you're talking about workshops, credit bearing courses, you're talking about fellowships and all the different ways that librarians can start integrating privacy literacy into the existing structure that they already have there. So that, that, that was really strong. And so, you know, as we're moving into that fourth and final section of your book, you're examining how we can advocate within the library and our larger institution to bring about change to existing policies and practices. So how can institutions do this, not only in the library, but also campus-wide? Well, I think the best approach, which is generally not the one I choose, which is why I always flame out, but is to form coalitions and collaborations. So there are folks at your campus who care about privacy, but don't know that they care about privacy because we have not been taught the terminology and the lexicon. And in my opinion, again, the theory and the ethical values around these issues. So it tends to not surface in conversations around student data capture, around student interventions using products like Starfish, um, around you know the cameras on policies in a Zoom class, right? It, the privacy tends to not surface in those conversations. So one of the chapters from this section that I'm really excited about, and I'm, I'm kind of picking up their torch and moving forward with it, is the privacy pedagogy chapter by Lindsay Wharton, uh, Liz Dunn, and Adam Beauchamp. Uh, so privacy pedagogy, they so elegantly explain, is the practice of using our privacy values to teach about privacy while incorporating learner privacy and learning design. Uh, so the idea here is that you would work, you know, as librarians, an opportunity would be to work with instructors and teaching faculty to think about how students' privacy fits into the learning design of their course, whether that's about how they evaluate and select courseware, whether that's about drafting a privacy statement for their syllabus so that students are made aware of some of these data capture issues and other any opportunities they have to opt in or out. Um, something I'm looking at now is whether we should be offering privacy accommodations. Is there a civil liberties in education interest in enabling students to say, can I get access to this learning experience without the kind of data capture that I'm concerned about that I don't consent to, right? What would that look like in an in analogous way, not to diminish um, the need for accommodations for students with disabilities, but is there an analogy to be had there, to be explored there? Um, so I really, really love that privacy pedagogy chapter. And that I think is an area where librarians are natural advocates for students' learners' privacy and how essential that is to their learning experience, to their ability to exercise freedom of expression, to uh, mitigate some of the chilling effect and self-censorship that we're now seeing a lot of empiric empirical data about on college campuses. Um, and it's just a natural place where we can be advocates on campus for, for privacy issues. We also have a really great opportunity right now. And I'm thinking actually of a conversation that Sarah and I serendipitously had with a kinesiology professor and, and writing and composition professor yesterday, um, where they were asking our thoughts on the privacy aspects of like generative AI, because right now this is a huge topic. And um, both of these uh, faculty members are very like on the forefront of thinking about this and, and actually applying it in their classroom, how they can utilize these technologies. Um, but they didn't really stop to think of the privacy dimensions. So they were talking to us about this. Uh, but there is a huge push on, I would imagine, most college campuses to have more knowledge and understanding and um, dialogue around these technologies. So right now, this is a great way to advocate as uh, our 
in our profession, on our campuses, on how our ethical values, the ethical side of this generative AI is often coming through with data privacy. So there are ways for us to be advocating for privacy literacy that addresses a lot of um, these new technologies that are getting um, implemented in classrooms. So that to me is a really huge moment that we're in where we shouldn't waste <laughs> the moment and try and find ways. Uh, our writing and composition uh, colleague who we were talking with was saying like, oh, we should have a learning colloquium about this because everything, like this literally is going to impact every profession. And Sarah and I are constantly talking about this with um, privacy. All of these practices, all of these data harms, they apply to every profession. This is not going to be something that's isolated to computer science. So there is this opportunity um, for outreach on campus and to position ourselves um, as advocates and leaders in this area. Uh, and that's something that uh, Sarah and I have been advocating for within our profession. And we're hoping more people want to take on that mantle um, because it is the missing part of the conversation uh, because we we do lack the language like Sarah was uh, mentioning earlier. And I think in the library profession, at least, we've been a, a bit, um, the framing of privacy has been caught up solely in patron privacy and library privacy. Uh, and it isn't always expanding beyond that into something uh, a bit more <laughs> to the societal level, which we absolutely, as Sarah said earlier, you do not have to be a technologist to get involved with this. This is an ethical um, conundrum and you do not have to be an expert. And it just a note on pedagogy, that's one thing that we've really embraced, the humility, um, what we don't know. And students appreciate that. And we've never had um, anyone think less of our expertise or knowledge or what we're bringing to the classroom because we've admitted like, oh my gosh, that's a great question. Like, I've never even thought of that before. Like, let's go look for this. Um, so humility uh, is a huge component of how we feel confident being able to approach these topics with our communities. But. The other thing I'll say to my fellow librarians is stop asking for permission. If you need to ask for forgiveness, like build it and maybe they will come and maybe they won't come, right? But you won't ever know if you haven't tried it. So as Alex mentioned earlier, all of our materials, including peer facing, so train the trainer type sessions we've done um, are all available open license. So you're welcome to peruse them, reuse them, or just use them as inspiration for developing your own materials. But you know, I, I'll cop to it. There have been times that we've offered workshops and we don't get folks coming or we get a couple of folks coming or, you know, and sometimes we offer workshops and we're really um, pleasantly surprised by the turnout. There's no harm in trying it, right? The harm may be in thinking that this is all a great idea and something that your campus community really needs and never pursuing it. Um, and something that came out in our most recent study that we presented at ACRL 2023 is the entrepreneurial, the need for entrepreneurial thinking in this space. There was also just a white paper that came out from, I think it's a Mellon funded project. Um, Alex will remind me of the person who's leading that, but basically about how libraries need to think about staffing for privacy, how we don't adequately support these initiatives in our libraries. And the folks that we talk to who are doing this um, are all doing it in addition to their primary roles, right? So um, 
it's something that people kind of need to take the mantle on, um, be really entrepreneurial, look for that opportunity to kind of wedge in and offer this, whether again, that's a, a fleeting comment in a, a one-shot session that might lead to something deeper with that faculty member or with some student-facing programming. Um, and if you get your wrist slapped, you know, you get your wrist slapped. But I would, I would say that the, the penalty is generally worth it. Um, and it can really blossom into something like, I don't, I don't know that Alex and I thought that our work would look the way that it does today when we started this together six years ago, right? Uh, or when I started kind of giving these to, um, as you know, a couple of students at the community college, we were all kind of wearing our figurative tinfoil hats talking about big data issues back in 2014. And now almost 10 years later, we've got the book, we've got this suite of workshops, we're working on a general education course, we're working on a second book, you know, we've got ACRL citing it in their um, 2021 environmental scan. So it's really come into its own. And I think now's the time for folks to be exploring how this can really enhance and raise the profile of your local library programming on your campus. And I will also throw out one more thing that has been um, a surprise to me, maybe naively a surprise, uh, but one thing that's come up is sometimes people need it to be personal, even faculty. Uh, so just like our students, uh, sometimes people are like, eh, I don't care when it seems like abstract. So Sarah and I tend to, in our foundational workshop in particular, which is where we catch most of our first year students, uh, is start with exploring it on the personal level. And then we kind of build to looking at the impact and how it echoes throughout society um, and how it impacts marginalized groups. Um, so I think sometimes, and even conversations we've had surrounding things like data collection and learning analytics, um, there have been instances where, you know, faculty on our campus are interested in data that we're collecting, but we kind of control, uh, and we've said no. Uh, and even positing some thought um, experiments with them, like, well, how about if this was used to make this um, a mandate for faculty and you would lose some of your, you know, academic freedom to choose what content you put in your course, like just making it personal and how it would impact their job or their life. It really opens their eyes a little bit more and make them more receptive to the conversation. So even being willing, like I know Sarah's talking about getting a slap on the wrist, but also even being willing to have dialogue with folks where it's not our argumentative, but it's just kind of like walking them through how this impacts not just students, but how it could impact them. Uh, and then uh, they'll be a little bit more receptive, at least in my experience, to having these conversations and allowing for that advocacy to, to grow on campus. That's excellent. And and what I really appreciated as a practitioner as well is, is the final chapter of the book. And where, where you talk about the the lateral privacy literacy. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about how practitioners, librarians, others in higher education can kind of uh, develop their own privacy literacy and their learning experiences and how we can bring that to student and our library student workers as well. Definitely happy to. Yeah. So I would say, again, shameless plug, but a good place to start would be with our Digital Shred Privacy Literacy Toolkit. So you can use your search engine of choice to search for that phrase, or it's at sites.psu.edu slash digital shred. And what this is, is a repository of open licensed materials or pointers to case studies from popular media. There's teaching materials in there, all ways that you can browse around and develop your own privacy literacy practice. Within there, you will find materials from all of our our 
peer-to-peer -peer or peer-facing training sessions where we've got guides to thinking through what privacy uh, issues are interesting to you, both personally and professionally, and then seeking out uh, publishing outlets and podcasts and, you know, journalists on a beat and other folks that you might be following, you know, X handles or Twitter handles or other social media handles that you might be following to kind of stay abreast of developments on those particular topics of interest. So I, you know, again, shameless plug, but the, that toolkit really developed selfishly for our own purposes when we started developing one of our privacy workshops that again is that more traditional workshop called Digital Shred about managing your digital footprint, we realized we don't want to be creating our own guides for like how to set your privacy settings in Apple. Like Apple has that for all their iOS products, right? So why not just link out to it? And so that toolkit organically grew from us collecting and curating all of these existing how-to guides for how to manage your digital footprint. And then we started adding additional theoretical pieces, or we started adding um, case studies that we use in classes. So we're, we say case study, and what we just mean is a popular media piece about a privacy-related issue, right, that we have students then analyze in our workshops. Um, there is collections of peer-facing uh, materials in there, again, teaching materials. So you can find that all in the toolkit. Um, and then I'll let Alex talk more about our upcoming project that she'll be leading. Uh, I put it in the chat so Sarah could say it, but I will I will definitely jump in. Uh, we also have the opportunity, we have a forthcoming title that we're going to be working on in uh, we project it should come out in like 2025, but a privacy literacy field guide. Uh, so essentially, we're going to be uh, working on something to support practitioners with their development of their knowledge and expertise, um, but also uh, in both privacy literacy and theory, but also pedagogy and how they can apply that to their practice. Um, and then looking, like you had mentioned earlier, uh, Michael, into how they can apply it in disciplinary contexts or whatever sort of context that they're living in. So whether that's one shots, whether that's workshops, like single co-curricular workshops, whether that's a whole entire credit bearing class, but it's going to be a way for um, librarians to have support in you know, self-educating and then also um, applying this to their practice and hopefully advocating for it in their work uh, and making it a part of their job and making it fit into their job, knowing that, you know, we have ever-expanding roles. Uh, so that field guide will hopefully be um, impressed in 2025. That's the intent to really help support other people and make this happen on a larger scale in academic libraries, because at least according to, again, what our previous research has shown us there aren't really other campus entities addressing this. Um, nobody is taken the mantle yet. So we have this opportunity to like kind of jump in and start making sure that this is happening uh, with our, our students. And as we always say when we're doing our peer workshops um, with other librarians, like our students, particularly in higher ed, obviously, are the futures of these technologies. They are going to be the ones creating these apps, writing the code. They're gonna be the ones investing in these technologies or utilizing them because they're physicians or they're people uh, investing with, um, with folks. Like maybe they're in finance, maybe they work in the criminal justice system. So we wanna make sure that our students are being educated on um, not just privacy, but also the ethics of these technologies and how they impact um, everybody, like individually and at a societal level. Oh, excellent. 
And so I'm just looking at the clock and I want to thank you for your time for taking time to speak with me about your book today. And as we wrap up, I, I typically like to ask the projects that you're working on. And I'm so glad you brought up the privacy literacy field guide. And we'll be looking out for that book coming up in, in about a year or two. But you, you've kind of touched on this as well. What other projects are you working on uh, related to privacy? And then are you planning on heading in any new directions in the future? So one that's always on the back burner for me is gamifying some of these learning experiences. But we were just talking the other day, we had an idea to do a surveillance capitalism monopoly. So if you're not familiar, surveillance capitalism was the main theory coming out from Shoshana Zuboff's book, The Age of Surveillance Capitalism, the new fight for... Uh, New Fight for Freedom at the Frontier of Power or something like that, Human Fight for Freedom at the Frontier of Power. So, um, you know, we think that that would be really fun. So essentially featuring data brokerages and ad tech companies and other types of entities as the properties that you might land on around the board and then having the, the different um, community chess cards and those other situational cards, you know, be privacy themed. Um, I'm also always cooking up an idea about an impossible to escape room. So I've done some escape room pedagogy for other courses, but I'd love to do one on the ubiquitous of surveillance technologies and essentially you know the end experience for the student is no matter what you choose in this kind of choose your own adventure format you can't actually escape surveillance right so that it would be a learning experience that's gamified but really geared to reveal and pull back the curtain on some of these surveillance technologies in everyday life um so gamifying privacy literacy is a big one Alex, um, or we discussed, you know, AI literacy, her algorithmic literacy initiatives, uh, intimate privacy. So we've got a lot of workshop programming that's very theory rich that we would love to write up for publication. So that again is always on the back burner. And then as I mentioned in our most recent interview-based study, this um, issues of kind of entrepreneurial identity, entrepreneurial sense-making, entrepreneurial and innovativeness, um, this kind of entrepreneurial mindset kept coming up among privacy literacy practitioners. So um, I'll properly cite that white paper I was referencing earlier. That project was led by Eliza Bettinger and that was part of the library licensing project and the, the principal investigator is Lisa Janicki Hinchcliffe. But um, the point being that before people see that white paper and adopt that staffing model, <laughs> what I want to do is get a paper out there that demonstrates really how entrepreneurial um, practitioners have had to be to create, to craft this area of practice that I think is so high value at a time when libraries are kind of um, demonstrating their own obsolescence in a variety of ways. Um, so getting that paper out there, I think would be great. And then we're always just looking for the next frontier of privacy uh, challenges to develop workshop programming around. And I think um, hopefully that general education course would really give us some room to run with some of these ideas with students. And I would love to see um, in, a, in that deeper prolonged engagement, what they would be able to come up with, with some controversy mapping of privacy topics. Yeah, and Sarah covered a lot of like the larger scale projects, but I will throw out there that one thing locally that I'd really like to see uh, and that we're definitely going to at least have one privacy uh, pedagogy workshop inspired by Lindsay Wharton, Liz Dunn, and um, Adam Bashamp's chapter in our book um, this spring, but expanding how we partner with our Center for Teaching and Learning on campus and being able to work with faculty to integrate these concepts and these topics into their curriculum. So both the pedagogy, like Sarah described earlier, but then also like how do you incorporate these topics into your curriculum? How do you incorporate these ethics into your curriculum? Uh, and maybe even tying that back to um, DEIAB 
uh, initiatives that are going on on our campus. So uh, we did we do have that data justice workshop coming up in the spring first that's student facing, but it would be similar in the sense that we would be working with faculty to kind of um, there's a big push on our our campus to try and integrate this into the curriculum and. To be frank, these topics are rife with these issues. So being able to like really make this a part of our campus community a bit more um, and build that um, culture here would be another, I would say, long-term goal for us locally. Well, these sound like great projects and I'm really looking forward to your next book, Privacy Literacy Field Guide. That's gonna be excellent. Sarah and Alex, I wanna thank you for your time today. I really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you so much for the opportunity, Michael. It was a pleasure. Yep. Thank you for having us. Yeah. I'm Michael LaMagna, and thank you for listening to the New Books and Library Science podcast channel on the New Books Network.